HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Randall Graham. We'll talk to Randall about a life in wine and what he's up to lately. We'll taste Randall's new Syrah Grenache for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Hailing out of Los Angeles, Randall Graham headed north to college in Santa Cruz. A stint at a wine shop in Beverly Hills woke Randall to the allure and magic of wine, sending him to UC Davis to study plant science and an itching obsession with Pinot Noir. Randall made his way back to Santa Cruz, and as they say, the rest is history. He started Bonnie Dune Vineyard in the early 80s and made a sharp turn from Pinot Noir to becoming a California pioneer of Rhone varietals, starting with his iconic Le Cigar Volant. Randall recently sold Bonnie Dune and launched a new project called The Language of Yes with none other than the Gallo family. Randall's other obsession is his interest in work in the expansion and expression of new varietals in California at Pope Loshum. Randall approaches the whole wine thing with a bit of wit, as a bad boy sometimes, a dreamer, and what I think, a true genius. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Randall. Thank you so much. All right, we're talking to Randall remotely. I'm in New York. Randall's in L.A. Um, via our AppZenCast. Santa oh, we're, Cruz. Uh, Santa Cruz. You're from LA. That was my bit. All right. So you are in Santa Cruz, and where are you at home? Winery? In in my office, in my very cluttered office. Okay. It's, it, it's a good thing this is audio and not visual. It would be embarrassing, right? A teensy um, bit. All right. So Randall, before we get started, I wanted to point something out that you and I 
spoke about briefly when we were at the Skernick tasting. Um, you appeared on another show I did with Gary Vaynerchuk called Wine and Web on Sirius Satellite. That was over a dozen years ago. Correct. Um, do, do you do you remember anything from that? I remember I couldn't get a word in edgewise. I think Why was that? Why do you think? Because you know, Gary didn't shut up? Gary, Gary could, would... I think Gary was a little bit, um, I won't say starstruck because I don't think that's, that was the case, but he th I think he was a little nervous. I think I made him a little bit nervous, so he just talked a lot. So that's a good point. You know why? Because we're talking a dozen years ago. That was right before Gary kind of hit it huge because today, yes. I mean, he's just sort of a guru in many senses. And I think, you know, we had years of guests, but certain guests meant more to us than others. And I think you're right. I think having you on, you know, he knew your whole reputation from, you know, the family wine business and all that. And that may have caught up. But people respond differently. You know, they feel they have to out talk you or outsmart you, um, which I think not so, not so hard to do, by the way. No, 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 stop. All right. So, Randall, uh, when you talk about wine, when you talk about California wine, when you talk about the areas that, you know, you went into, I mean, I'll probably throw a lot of these terms out. I mean, you're legendary. But as I mentioned offline, let's assume there's some people out there, you know, that don't know much about you or don't know you at all. So, I ask you to give me a little background, more of a chronology of your journey in life and wine that got you to what we're going to discuss, um, you know, in a little bit, the language of yes. So just, you know, get me there. I intimated a few things in the intro, but tie it all together for me. Well, I was born in a simple log cabin in Beverly I'll Hills, stop, California. I'll kill you. <laughs> in a log I'll cabin in Beverly Hills, California. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Wandered into a wine shop in uh, on the corner of Roxbury and Santa Monica a number of years ago, 1975. And the first thing they asked me was, would you like to open a charge account? I was um, not quite 21 at the time. Anyways, I ended up working in the wine shop and was exposed to the great greatest wines of the world. So my introduction to wine were the first growths and great burgundies. And I thought to myself, these are, these are pretty right. wonderful wines. And at, at some point, I came to the realization that as much fun as it was to drink these wines and sell these wines and talk about them, it might perhaps be even more fun to learn how to make them myself. So I called up UC Davis and I said, okay, I'm ready now. And they said, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, you're, re you're ready now. Well, you've been, <laughs> you've been to college. <laughs> you've been to college once. Why don't you give somebody else a chance? I said, no, no, no you don't understand. <laughs> this, time, this time I'm serious. So <laughs> they said, okay. okay, long story short, I went to college twice. It was kind of like Groundhog Day. Right. And um, I did finish a degree at Davis in plant science, and my family helped me out to buy some land in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the eponymous Bonnie Dune area. And uh, I was obsessed with Pinot Noir. That was my E-Day fix, my mantra. And I just kind of was insufferable because I was obsessed with it. And I, I, so I came to the Santa Cruz Mountains with the hope of making the Great American Pinot, and my hopes were just totally dashed at every turn. Um, I ended up making wine that was not very interesting, Pinot that was not very interesting. 
And luckily for me, I had made the acquaintance of the Albanian wine merchant, uh, Kermit Lynch, who had a little shop in Albany, California. And Kermit sort of alerted me to the existence of the wines of Southern France. And I had a very simplistic hypothesis. It's um, warm and dry in Southern France. It's warm and dry in the central coast of California. So <clears throat> maybe the varieties of Southern France could be interesting in California. In retrospect, so Kermit Lynch was a definitely a, a guide or an inspiration to looking towards that direction. He was a catalyst and catalyst. Uh, good word. Yeah, and and uh, and an inspiration. I mean, he was back in those days. Kermit had a little wine shop, and nobody ever went to see him. So you could go in there, and he was there all the time. You could talk to him about music or whatever, and right. um, he had a relatively d discreet but loyal audience he didn't have the worldwide reputation that he has now and he was he just would talk to anyone who would listen to him about Rhone, Rhone wines anyways um i decided to give it a shot um back in the day there was not a lot of uh Rhone grapes available in california there were only four syrah vineyards um, each of them dreadful in their own unique way um, Grenache itself, no, nobody or few people knew that Grenache could make a red wine in California. Morved um, <laughs> was traveling under a different name. It was called Mataro. So not right. that many people knew that Morved even existed. And of course, Sanso, nobody really th thinks thought much about Sanso. Anyways, I had this intuition, luckily for me, that maybe, you know, a blend of these grapes could, could work uh, well, because none of them, I my I read my reasoning was none of them were going to be perfect, none of them were going to be exactly right, but maybe by blending them together, I could compensate for the deficits of the individual components. And this this was an intuition that I had, which, of course, is confirmed. Every Mediterranean grape growing area has come to the same conclusion in a warm, dry climate. If you want to make a complex wine, it needs to be a blend of different varieties to compensate for the uh, deficits of the individual components. But wasn't the South of Rhone doing that, you know, anyway? I mean, did you, did you, were you not aware they were doing it? You didn't take time to look at it or? Well, no, no. I mean, actually um, I did. Um, and I, again, came to the, you know, it's not just the Southern Rhone, but every, every warm. Yeah. But it, I mean, but the it, general point is true. The general point, but you know, people were so obsessed with monocipage wines back then mm -hmm. um, that the idea of making a blend was commercially at least uh, risky. Um, people were not would not pay as much for a blended wine as they would for a single varietal wine, right. which is unfortunately still still the case in in, in many regards. Yeah, silly. Yeah, well, whatever. But that's yeah. that's that's the wine biz for you. All right. Any, anyhow, um, so it's been basically a result of intermittent positive reinforcement. Um, it's worked well. This this strategy has worked well for a really long time. So I've kept I kept doing it for a really long time. So the first vintage of Cigar Volant was 1984, and miraculously, it came out reasonably well. And um, in retrospect, there are many ways it could have not turned out so well. So I was extremely lucky that it did. 
And that just kind of encouraged, you know, encouraged me to keep doing what I've been doing for quite some time. Right. So I, so, I, I kept, I started Bonnie Dune Vineyard, um, in 1982, actually 81. First vintage of cigar was 84. And Bonnie Dune grew kind of somewhat uh, organically, shall we say, right. which is to say like crazy without a great, a great plan in place. And it became very complex, very convoluted. Um, we made a lot of wines, a lot of different wines, made spirits and uh, fruit wines and dessert wines and all kinds of crazy things. And <clears throat> but you 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 push the timeline up a little. Obviously, you know, you released that first wine. It, it, it turned out to come out, you know, pretty damn good, became popular. You started getting a following, I guess, you know, every vintage after people were looking forward, you made more, sold more and all of that. It sounds like, you know, you got to a point where things were going so well, you expanded, you know, I think that's what you're alluding to, maybe overexpanded, which you corrected at some point down the road. Well, we, we overexpanded and I made another wine that was quite significant called big house and big house was really the right. engine. And in retrospect, I think I'm afraid that big house spoiled the perception of cigar volant, both in, in a real sense and in, in, in a, in a uh, imaginary sense as well. In other, in other words, a lot of people thought, well, if I'm making so much big house and making so much wine and Bonnie June is such a large, uh, winery, how can they possibly be making good cigar volant or great cigar volant? And I think there was a little criticism among, among some notable wine critics from Maryland I, who will remain nameless. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, did that, did that bother you? I mean, or it, it bothered what did it? I, uh, okay. And I, th I think it, it did not enhance the perception of the brand. Uh, I mean, again, there was kind of a bifurcation among the people who, who loved the wine and followed it and bought it, and those who were sort of the trophy seekers, the collectors, the ones who right. the point score keepers, the ones who bought buy, bought wine because of high Which points. Which followed the Maryland guy very closely. It followed the Maryland stuff. guy, and it also followed the wine spectator guy, right. As well, both, right? Suckling, yeah, whatever. and so not so you know loud. I'm a little sensitive to criticism. Uh, you know, what's one of the features of American wine culture is still, to a great extent, our obsession with uh, concentration and density and color and power. And if, if you don't make wines in that style, they're often perceived uh, to, their, to their detriment. So Cigar Volant was never as powerful as Chateauneuf du Pop. I never wanted it to be as powerful as Chateauneuf du Pop. Frankly, right. I can't even drink most Chateauneuf du Pop anymore these days. Right. So I think if I had gone the route of sort of heavy extraction and more density and riper fruit, I think I probably would have been more commercially successful, but probably not as happy with the wines themselves. Well, there's a handful of people that didn't fall prey to that you know made the wines that they envisioned you know a little more restrained but let me ask you this on the big house red when you look back at that 
I mean, was that a reaction to make a commodity wine and that's what it was? Or it was actually made well for the price point and what you were trying to do? It's kind of a loaded question because I don't know well, why it was, you say it's, it's, it sucks, all, but. It doesn't suck. It, I mean, the wine was very good. It was. It was a great value. It was a great value. I was lucky in those days to have access to a lot of really good old vine, good and inexpensive old vine Carignan, um, which was really sort of the basis of Big House. And if it w wasn't for the Carignan, the wine wouldn't have been as interesting as it was. To be, to be honest, I had actually, this is what happens when you overthink things. I had a vineyard in, um, well, what happened is I had a, an estate vineyard in Bonnie Dune. I made some very good estate wines in the early days, in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. Unfortunately, the estate vineyard succumbed to Pierce's disease, and um, which was quite tragic, and the last vintage was 1994. Anyhow, I bought a I was kind of stung by this. It was it was really when hurt, when you really, say you got hit by disease, I mean like major major no, no, amount no, of it, the vines. It killed it killed about seventy five percent of the vines. Wow, wow, yeah. That's so crazy. it was uh, back in the day. It was not possible. It was not clear that you could continue to grow grapes in Santa Cruz Mountains because of the right. prevalence of Pierce's disease. So I somewhat rashly sold the vin the vineyard property and which was also where I lived. So it was it was quite a painful moment. Um I bought some property <clears throat> in the Salinas Valley in uh town of near Soledad and planted a vineyard. Uh there was not a lot of Pierce's disease pressure and that you know I was at least right. I had a vineyard that it was not going to get Pierce's disease, but the vineyard never performed as, as beautifully as the, as the state vineyard in Bonnie Dune. It, oh, so the point I was making is that I had this conceptual idea of making big house as a blend of Italian varieties, Italian Piemontese grapes. In ah. particular. I was going to, it was going to be Barbera, Dolcetto, Fresa, and Nebbiolo. And I, plant, <laughs> I planted all these grapes in Soledad. The problem was that none of them really ripened properly, and none of them had a pH above 3.0. So they were all just insanely acidic, um, not so terribly pleasant. And that was the, 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 the great big house I was going to make. When you um, talk about that experiment, I mean, is, are we talking about a span of like three, four, five, six years, you know, because of uh, growing grapes or whatever was there and blending it till you figured out it wasn't good? I mean, how much time goes by to get that good? Probably five or six years. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, wow. I mean, so the, as they say, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. So I, <laughs> the solution to the pollution of Big House, all this low pH Barbera and Dolcetto that was undrinkable, yeah. was, yeah. A, was a whole bunch of higher pH uh, Carignan, and it just kind of all disappeared in the blend. It so that's the right idea. But all right, so let's finish up. So we're at Bonnie Dune. You know, you expand the line, you add uh, Big House, you do even more with Cardinals Inn, you do White Wine Pacific Rim, I think Riesling. Correct. Um, all this is going on. I mean, things are going. And then there's some kind of different direction that happens. Get me to that and then get me to uh, House of Yes. 
I'm House so, of Yes, the language of Yes. There's a so, club in Brooklyn called the House of Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, Bonnie Dune had actually grown quite large, uh, very large. I think we were the 18th largest winery in the United States. Wow. 18th or 20. It was something crazy. We were doing like 450,000 cases of wine, which wow. is a lot of wine. And I also had a lot of bank debt. And um, I was not, the, the business had become very complex and very scary. And I just thought, well, Jesus, if interest rates rise like 2%, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm toast. So right. it, was a, it was a propitious time to sell a uh, big house. So I, Sold Big House and uh, and Cardinals in, and sort of got out when the when the going was good, which was brilliant. Um, I ended up selling Pacific Rim a few years after that. Anyhow, so Bonnie Dune uh, continued um, absent Big House and absent Cardinals in, and it was it's been a challenge. It had been it was a challenge after that to sort of make the business to right size the business and make it profitable at that smaller scale. So, um, I kind of continued on, um, with Bonnie Dune for, I think 10 or 12 years afterwards, uh, until such time as it, uh, I thought it was necessary to sell, sell Bonnie Dune, which I did not that uh, long ago, right? Not that long ago. Correct. And uh, uh, to talk to me about that quickly. I mean, so after everything you went through, you know, a lot we discussed, you decide, you know, I'm ready to sell it. Um, well, I was, that, I was the, the bank, the bank told me I was ready to sell it. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, so other uh, circumstances too. Um, and what do you maintain a role? I've heard you I, say president of Bonnie Doom for life, but I'm not sure where and if that applies. Tell me what your role is. I'm still sort of the consulting winemaker. I, I sort of put my blessing on the final blends. I collaborate with the proper winemaker, Nicole Walsh, uh, on blending trials and give advice and sort of continue to keep my hand in, in, in Bonnie Dune, but it's definitely a lesser role than, than previous. Do you have uh, faith in Nicole's ability, you know, to continue? Nicole is, uh, Nicole, Nicole is brilliant. Um, okay. She worked, she worked with me for like 18 years at Bonnie Dune. So uh, she and I. So Bonnie Dune fans should not fret. They should know that. No, not at all. Um, and, you know, I, I always worry, I always wonder about big business, you know, somebody buys something and, you know, the, the seller either bails out early or gets pushed out. You know, in this case, it almost makes no sense to have you uninvolved, you know, regardless. I mean, the, the soul of the brand is you. So that sounds like where it is now. And hopefully, you know, that'll continue with ease, right? Correct. All right. So that frees you up in many ways financially emotionally time and all of that so you get involved in another project but i'm curious and you'll talk about the language of yes was that going on many years before did that come up you know tell me the story of that no it actually came up after the sale of bonnie Dude. okay and I was approached by Joe Gall Joe C. Young Joe Joe Gallo the Younger, um, right. to collaborate um, on a on a project. And 
Gallo's interested in sort of pushing themselves out of their uh, comfort zone and kind of really try to learn how to um, move into some new areas. And they thought I would be a good collaborator. So uh, you got to so give it to them for that, right? Indeed. Yes. Yeah. So it's obviously different working with a large large company i've never had to do that before so this is kind of a new experience but it, but the there was there was something that was important to you that the gallows were able to offer like their scale of research um which is important to how you you know look at wine and what you correct. can do with it and varietals right correct so in other words they have access to incredible resources both in the research end of things and in just in the vineyard end of things so it's um I mean, obviously, things are move in a, at a different pace than if you have your own business. Of course, but but there are enormous advantages as well. So I've been enjoying that uh, quite a bit. All right. So a little down the road in the show, we'll talk about the wines. And actually, you were gracious enough to send me some, so you know, we'll we'll taste a few too. Um, we'll come back to a few of these things, but you know, I want to talk to you about you know just some wine stuff in general. Sure. Um, specifically things that are important to me and I know to you and you've been practicing, um, which is farming and, you know, seller practices. Um, I came across something that seemed interesting, but I couldn't figure out enough of it. You talk about this thing called the life force in wine. Yes. Um, wh what is that? How is that? It seems like it's significant and relevant now. Am I right? And can you talk to me about that? Yes, yeah, so this is something that is not really talked about much, certainly not at UC Davis, but one of the things that is most interesting to me is what are the factors that enable a wine to live a long time? And it's not just simply tannin and anthocyanins. There's, there's elements, there have to be other elements that uh, enable wine to live. So, for example, if you open a bottle of many European wines and you drink a glass or two or three and you put the cork back in, the wine is going to be good the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, sometimes even weeks or even months. Whereas many New World wines, you do the same thing. In the next morning or day, the wine is dead on arrival. So I think this should be one of the things that winemakers really fixate on and try to understand what are the, what are the things if we if we don't understand the mechanism which we don't um, at the very least we should un try to understand what practices conduce to producing wines that have this life force and by life force i mean basically the ability to to tolerate oxygen oxidative challenge if you will but expand on that a little i i think i know what you mean but, but give me more layman's on that the, the, so, the exposure and, 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 to air, or, or how? So, in other words, when you when you when wine is exposed to air, it can either degrade, which is to say, it could become aldehydic, it could lose its fruit and kind of dry out, right? Or it could remain fresh and sort of unchanged. And um, I want to make wine. I think that's also a key to under to making a wine that lives a long time. And, and I think if you want to make a great wine, the wine has to be capable of aging. Uh, otherwise, it's not a great so wine. So to that point, how do you affect that? How do you control that? I mean, what are the things you do to get there? 
Well, there, there are certain gross things and certain more subtle things. The, the grosser okay. things, I mean, are sort of low, lower pH seems to help wine's longevity, although in some cases that doesn't, doesn't seem to be the case. Smaller yields seem to be, the, uh, seem to be helpful. Lower, um, less ripe fruit seems to be more to the point. But really, I think it has to do with vineyard practice and organic practice, biodynamic practice, having a healthy microflora in the soil seems to be correlated with this ability to of the wine to age and again nobody has really posited a mechanism of how this works but it, it, there does seem to be a correlation so there's definitely to affect when we talk about life force and wine to affect you know proper change there definitely has to be as you say a focus towards soil health um you know, which yes, creates that vitality. I mean, is that that healthy soil, that vitality that helps with, you know, when you talk about the oxidative part of it? Yeah. I mean, in other words, this is not, not something you can do in the winery. This is something that is achieved in the, in the vineyard practice itself. And in, in other words, if you, as an example, if you go to a Nicolas Jolie tasting, I don't know if he's done one in a while, but if you taste through a whole range of biodynamic and organic wines among the you'll find that many of them will be kind of funky and weird and strange and kind of right whatever but on the other hand there's also a quality a a through line through all these wines of a sort of intensity and persistence and vitality as well and um that's something that again i think is seems to be created in, in a certain vineyard, respectful vineyard practice, keeping yields down and, you know, keeping pesticides, uh, right. fungicides and so forth away from the, away from, uh, the, the vineyards. Um, so you started, you didn't always, but you started farming biodynamically, what, in the early mid two thousands? Uh, actually earlier than that. Earlier? I mean, were you, even though you maybe weren't certified or following it to the T, I mean, do you feel your practices were, you know, very sensitive, you know, to the needs of the vineyard and the soil, or you realize you weren't doing it right and had a realization? Well, um, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not the world's greatest organic practitioner i mean are the vineyards i haven't the vineyard i have in san juan batista is not certified but it is in fact organic we don't use any right. non-organic material and it's not we've haven't had the time and the focus to, to really farm biodynamically but we have done some interesting things in the vineyard to <clears throat> again enhance the life force and the soil health so specifically the one thing that we did uh, quite progressively a while ago was to bring in a very a very large quantity of biochar into the vineyard and incorporate that into the soil and that, what is that biochar is essentially activated charcoal which ah. when mixed with compost um, seems to greatly enhance the prevalence of my certain micro beneficial microbes, the mycorrhizae, which are the symbiotic right. fungi that live in the roots of the plants right. that bring minerals, that bring minerals into the plants. So that's been, been very, very helpful. It also enhances um, 
water holding capacity. So we're, we're trying important. to we're we're farming with minimal amount of irrigation at this point. And again, that's another factor. If you can pull it off, that enhances the intensity of, of the wine and uh, the concentration. Right. Um, but when you said early on, you know, you were not technically organically farming, but you were. I'm. Um, are you? Tech, are you? I'm trying to fish for words. Are you certified as biodynamic now, or are you no, practice biodynamic? No. We we you, practice you, um, okay. or we practice organic farming, but are not certified. Uh, again, I'm I'm not a great. Yeah, and I'm not looking to. I don't want to get caught up with terms or even back against the wall. But I I mean, you know, the practice is more important than anything. Sure. Um, is regenerative farming even a step further than that, or is biodynamics regenerative farming? Or I mean, I, I think they could they they they, they largely overlap. But regener okay. regenerative farming is sort of the gold standard, I think, at this point. So do you still contract grapes from anybody, or you can grow everything you make? Well, Popolishum uh, is 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 what it is. So I, for my own project, for the Popolishum project, I I don't I don't buy grapes. Right. Uh, language language of yes, uh, we. Gallo owns most of the vineyards, but there's a, there's some grapes that are purchased as well for that project. All right, so I, I want to push that off to the side because I want to spend a little more time on that. So I'm going to come back to that. Um, do you do you follow through in the cellar? I mean, obviously, if you look towards biodynamics, organics, you know, all of this stuff. Obviously, you have a soft touch in the cellar when it comes to making these wines? Yeah, I mean, I've, unfortunately, I'm, the, the, the language of yes wines are made down in San Luis Obispo, which is not exactly down the street uh, from no. where I live. So I don't get there quite as often as I'd like It's to more be. of a visit than pochgring around all day type Cor thing, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, but... To that to that point, I mean, when you're there, I mean, are you intervening much with the wines, or you did all the work, like you said, in the uh, vineyard? Well, as it turns out, most of the real work in if you want to make great wine, the work is done in the vineyard. It's it's kind of become a cliche, but it's 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 actually 100% true. So if you all you can really do is screw things up in the cellar, um, you don't really make wine so much. Right. As, as protect the wine, the, the potential that you can achieve. And that's what you're doing, right? That's what, <clears throat> that's what I'm trying, trying to do at least. Right. Right. Um, you know what you talk about, I, I, I think from the beginning, or at least you always believe that you wanted to make wines, you know, that represent or reflect their place. Correct. Um, um, I think he got there with the Rome varietals with Bonnie Dune and, you know, I think with Pope Lushum, you know, you're, you're able to do that. Um, is it, I mean, am I wrong about this? But like California, most of the wines through the years, it doesn't seem like there's a sense of that. It's just plant Cabernet here and Chardonnay there. You know, I mean, a lot of people we know are starting to grow, you know, Italian varietals and fun stuff. But isn't that predominantly what's going on in California? You know, these Maryland guy type wines, less place well, and just. 
you know, the, one way I think about it is sort of the lightness of, t- of the winemaking touch. You can have wines that are highly interventionist and wines that are minimally interventionist. And the minimally interventionist ones are the ones that tend to be more likely to be reflective of place than otherwise. So you can talk about strong stylistic control or minimal stylistic control. Um, so is a fair word manipulation? I mean, you, once you start manipulating things, you're losing that sense of place, right? Well, there's always a degree of manipulation in wine. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about, you know, acids and colors and right. all kinds of Right. So in other words, yeah, minimal, minimal additions to the wine. You know, the, the French use the term makeup, maquillage. So you want to have minimal maquillage. The, the wine wants to be more transparent, you know, the, and less obscured by special effects special effects can be the addition of uh, mega purple or a lot of new oak or just other manipulations of the wine whether it's uh, reverse osmosis or all that kind of stuff right um the nice thing at least in california is you know there's been a change towards interest in other varietals a little more restraint you know, guys like Steve Mathiasen and Dan Petrosky are doing interesting things, among others, you know, on a bigger level. Um, Randall, we have to take a quick break. Sure. Um, when we come back, um, I want to talk to you um, about the language of yes and a few other things. We're talking to Randall Graham. Um, We're going to talk to Randall about his new wine, The Language of Yes. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. After an amazing 2021, Ciderfest New England returns to Haverhill, Massachusetts at the Harbor Place Boardwalk on Thursday, June 23rd. Sample hard cider and snacks at this uniquely New England event. This all-inclusive tasting event celebrates craft ciders from some of the top cider makers in New England. To purchase your tickets or for more information, visit crafthaverill.com. 
craft.com today. That's C-R-A-F-T-H-A-V-E-R-H-I-L-L.com. Food Karma Projects supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Randall Graham. Um, Randall, I just want to close the book um, on the Bonnie Dune thing. Did you take a lot of crap early on, you know, from the wine community, local and in general, for just putzing around with all this Rhone varietal stuff? People leave you alone? Did they scratch their head? I mean, because, yes, you did, you know— pioneer you did go out on a limb and try all this stuff i mean what, what was that were you a loner did you get help how'd that play out well all of the above um, really i mean i was an early adapter for sure but there were a lot of people who could just kind of write at my back who um were were in other words the idea of run varieties in california was was ripe um i was early but there were a lot of people who just would came immediately thereafter so whether it's you know the bob linquists of the world and, right and, and such but anyways it it was an idea that was time had come um and the, the world the wine world was getting more sophisticated and a little more open to um new ideas i think people were my colleagues were pleased that i was sort of doing the heavy heavy work heavy lifting right. or you do you know, it not better them. better better yeah. you than me right exactly you go, you, go, you go into the coal mine first we'll see how it plays out see how it goes yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah that's, see if there's so, any oxygen, oxygen in the coal mine yeah. yeah so that's interesting so you know normal you know because the california wine community could be snooty the other thing that i i you know really notice that you know, made who you are and the brands what they are is how you positioned them or marketed them. And a lot of what was going on was, you know, way before social media. I mean, the internet was probably around, but this social media thing, you know, is a, a whole different thing. Um, I mean, whether it was, you know, your eye towards catchy labeling, your engagement, you know, of people, whether you were blogging and all of that. Um, have you, have you moved towards social media or it's just something you never, you know, got into cause you were able to do it. I mean, your stuff was unique. The well, social media, go ahead. I, you, um, I'm sort of sort of ambivalent about social media. I mean, I, I do tweet not as much as I used to, and I have a fairly significant Twitter following. I, I guess the issue, and certainly back in the day, I think I overcompensated or the, the, the amount of marketing and effort, that effort went into things besides winemaking to promote wines was kind of extraordinary and unprecedented. And, you know, I think, there was a fair bit of marketing shtick, if you will, uh, right. maybe more than was than was really needed. So I think the the marketing a fair criticism might be that the marketing outstripped the the wine itself. Um, I'm you trying think to so. Well, some people I, think I, so. Well, you're always going to get that, but you know, I think when you have a good wine and a strong, you know, personality. You, 
or any product, it's a pretty good match. Well, it was successful. I mean, it, a lot of a lot of effort was put into the, the packaging and labeling. I mean, and it was also great fun. I mean, I didn't even under, expect how much fun it would be to design wine labels and packages. So, um, right, it was. It's it's been great, and I've been lucky to work with uh, gifted Chuck House and so forth over the years. Yeah. I mean, the stuff is spectacular, and, you know, the new stuff is great, too, um, which is a good segue, because um, I want to talk about, you know, what seems exciting to me, which is your new project. It's called The Language of Yes. Um, we talked about it a little, but I want to get into it more. You know, the obvious thing to guys like me and other people are like, Jesus, Randall Graham went into business with the gallows. So expand a little more on that you know how did that come about i mean did they approach you you approach them you were both sitting in a wine bar and bumped into each other in the men's room no. i mean what what happened no i i, I approached them earlier on, on other business on different business years ago so i got to know joe uh senior joe 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 c's father right and uh i, I knew a number of the other uh Gallo members of the family as well, but it was as I said, it, was, it wasn't until after I sold Bonnie Dune that uh, Joe approached me about a collaboration. And again, I think this is something they were keen to do. They wanted to uh, improve their um, direct to consumer uh, program, and they their D- that- they wanted to improve their DTC and CF. You know what CF is? No idea coolness factor coolness <laughs> right well, they, went they to, thought they it would went be to, cool hanging with they, you they certainly went to the wrong guy for that if that was their in- intention well some people think otherwise but that's okay yeah uh, um so everything happens pretty quickly i guess i mean do you know everything, hap- everything happens pretty slowly because really? things happen slowly but it, it, they slowly but eventually they do happen and um it's continuing to evolve, you know. So one of the cool things, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, I don't think you had a chance to try the pink wine, but I was. No, I, but was, ju- I would just want to interrupt. So I think you sent me the Grenache and you sent me the Syrah. Towards the end of the show, we have a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip. We'll focus on that. But I just cracked open the Grenache. Um, and before you go where you were going to go with the pink wine, I just want to tell everyone that I just cracked open the 2020 language of yes Grenache and Passelarage. Is that the pronunciation? Um, Passerillage. Passerillage, Rancho Real Vineyard, and it's made in the Santa Maria Valley. And I'm going to take a sip of it. It's got like a beautiful, you know, light red. Mm. That's good. All right. So you were gonna, you were talking about. I didn't try the pink wine. Where were you going with that? I didn't try. You, you didn't try the pink wine, but the pink wine uh, is made from a very obscure grape called Tiburin, Tiburin, which is uh, genetically identical to another grape grown in Italy called Rosese in Liguria, which I and, love. Uh, me too. I'm a major fan of both Tiburin and Rosese, and I was able to persuade the gallows of the virtue of this very obscure grape. And so we've, we've got a very ambitious program to expand uh, the Tiburan plantation and um, 
Was there any implant that were planted or everything you had a plan? Um, I, I think I'm the only person who's been crazy enough to, to work with T-Brunner in California. I, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any other I think it's going to work out. You know, when I do the show at the end, we taste wine, which you and I are going to do, even though I cracked open the Grenache. And, you know, from time to time, I have a bunch of sommeliers. And you know the pulse of what's going on in the wine world when you let them bring the wines they want to bring in. And in the last, I don't know, 10 weeks, two, three people have brought in Rosaces. So you know cool. that it's a Psalm favorite or it's cool or it's interesting to them. And it's nice to see. So, I mean, that sort of validates, you know, what you're doing. All right. So let's finish up with the gallows. So everybody's all in. They understand the project. They support you. What's the research that you're taking advantage of? Well, I'm working with uh, Nick Dacuzian in, in Modesto, who's um, helping me understand a bunch of things about uh, grape varieties. We're actually tasting through some of their breeding projects they've got a very ambitious breeding program as well so i'm i'm trying to learn more about grape breeding from them um he's also been very interest very helpful in, in having me understand the role of viruses in uh, grapevines there's a really? funny grape called serene well that's interesting uh, which is an, an antique clone of syrah that i'm that i'm quite interested in so we're doing some work on perfecting serene um cleaning so, it up I'm a huge Syrah lover, Northern Roman lover. What's the distinctions between the Serene and the traditional Syrah? Is it, well, is it I've, I've, so obvious? It's not so obvious. Um, okay. <laughs> I've been spending a lot of time researching what is the difference between Syrah and Serene, and is, is Serene a, a particular biotype of Syrah? The best explanation I've been able to come to is that it's actually genetically identical to Syrah, but seems to have a certain virus that gives it certain characteristics that make it make it phenotypically different than Syrah. And um, the actual the, the virus that is, seems to be responsible is a funny variety called Red Globe Grape Virus. Right. Anyways, Red Globe tends to delay the right. Then tends to delay the ripening, increases the acidity, uh, makes for a smaller cluster, but also seems to enhance the the um, varietal aroma, which in the case of Syrah that sounds good. No, it's it's not so bad. Uh, right. It does it does some bad things as well. But okay, were you were you like boned up on viruses in varietals and all of that, or this was an an awakening? I mean, was this, this a deeper is, dive? Or you, it wasn't your first exposure to virusing and, and varietals, was it? No, but this is this is new. This is a lot of it. This is new information. Mm -hmm. I mean, ge generally speaking, grape growers tend to run away in the opposite direction from virus. Um, the, the question is: Is this something that can be lived with and managed, and perhaps even encouraged in, under certain conditions? Right. That's that's kind of a hard sell for 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 some. Um, all right. So we're, I think we've been talking about for the last few minutes, but you know, one of the nice things, and I'm sure it excites you is you're doing a bit of experimentation, um, with these wines. It seems like the project, you know, is giving you a chance to do different things like, you know, whether to pump over punch down. I mean, 
Um, the thing that really caught my attention was you're air drying the grapes only yes. for a few days. But, you know, tell me some of the things that you're doing and that you're, you're doing different and the effect that it has on the wine. Like I'm, the, I'm drinking the Grenache. Were the grapes air dried for a few days? Yes. So in other words, one of the, one of the techniques that I kind of accidentally discovered over the years was the idea of air drying grapes. And I am slightly indebted to Sean Thackeray, may he rest in peace. Yes, recently. Um, who had, I'm not sure exactly what he did, but one of the things that I have done is air dried grapes for several days, either in the vineyard itself, if it's cool enough, or I've actually taken grapes to fruit dryers and dried them in uh, drying tunnels really? as well. So th the idea is not really so much to concentrate the sugar, because that's actually something I don't want to do, but to to um, lignify the stems, to turn the stems from green to brown. So that, that I can, means less vegetal? Yes. In other words, when you do all, that? The, all the herbaceous character seems to disappear when the, right. when the stems turn brown. Right. And, and they actually turn brown in about two or three days. So um, it actually this the technique works really really well um the other thing that's interesting about doing whole whole cluster is it changes the physics of the fermentation or the the kinetics of the fermentation at least when you have whole entire grapes in the in the in the in the mix because they tend to give you a much slower more even fermentation rate which is right a beautiful you're thing. not doing carbonic are you it's not carbonic no are you putting a cover on the top or you're just no, letting the clusters do their own thing. Well, actually, the the technique we use, I call it the lasagna technique. We actually layer <laughs> layer crushed and uncrushed fruit on top of each other. I, ah. I don't even know where this idea came from. So maybe I saw it somewhere or heard about it somewhere, but who knows? Um, but it's it's very it works. It works great. You get very clean fermentations, uh, very regular fermentations, and Nice extraction, but not over extraction. So, very is that something you did before language of yes, or this is something? Is the lasagna thing a language of yes thing, or something you've tried before? I tried it before at Bonnie Dune, but I've incorporated it at okay. language of yes. Yeah, yes okay. is the answer. Okay, um, and then what about what else are you doing? So you're you're letting the stems brown. You're doing whole cluster. Um, what else in that process are you doing? Well, it's nothing, nothing else to really speak of, except that we age the wine in neutral barrels and older punchins, uh, again, trying to preserve the fruit in the wine right. and leave the wine on its lees as long as possible and then bottle without filtration. So it's, it's kind of more preserving than actual doing, if you will. Right. The Grenache with the the Grenache isn't filtered? Grenache is not filtered, correct. I mean it's you know, it's got beautiful clarity, you know, for an unfiltered wine. I'm looking right at it over white paper. It's beautiful. Um are all the um everything we talked about that goes into the fermenters and all that, is all of that or most of it, like you said earlier, estate grapes, you know, the Rancho Real stuff? 
the, the, the reds are the Grenache and the Syrah are both estate grapes from Rancho Real. The pink wine is from, uh, from Paso Robles because there, okay. uh, there isn't any uh, Tiburon grown yet in at Rancho Real. Right. Right. You're, you're kind of, uh, behind the eight ball and ahead of yourself. Um, may I ask without creating any commotion here, uh, the farming practices that the gallows follow at Rancho Real, are you okay with all of that? Yes, the sustainable verging on organic. So we've we've made some significant changes in the year in the two years that I've been working with them. So they they're, they're moving towards organic. And um, the other thing we did is we changed the uh, irrigation practice in the 2021 vintage. Uh, which is not the one you're tasting, but we actually used half as much water as we had previously. So um, wow. it turns out you can farm, you need, Santa Maria needs a little irrigation. Rancho Real needs a little irrigation because the soil is so sandy, but significantly less than, than they had previously been doing. That That's, that's a great direction. Um, and, why the central coast? Is it coincidence that they had vineyards there? Is that to make the wines you wanted to? That's where you needed to be climate-wise and all of that? Well, what's what's significant about Rancho Real is it's one of the coolest, climatically speaking, uh, vineyards in California. So uh, cool climate viticulture enables you to do so many interesting things from a winemaking standpoint. You're, you can make wines at lower alcohols that still have a lot of character you have more right. favor favorable acidity uh and just more they're just pretty often prettier wines more delicate more nuanced which is kind of a style that i'm aiming for i i, I agree with that um lastly on the language of yes let's talk about the wines themselves what are there three or four different wines uh, at the moment, there's four, and a fifth one is being contemplated for, for this this fall. So you have the Syrah, pronounce yeah, it for me again, Passerillage. How do you say that? Um, Passerillage. Passerillage. Um, Passerillage. Right. So you have um, Passerillage Grenache, um, Passerillage Syrah. Is the current bottling the 2020? Current bottling is the 2020. The 21 is going to be out in the, in the fall. Is the 20 your first vintage? Correct, yes. Okay, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then, so you have the Ampasselarage, Syrah, Grenache. Then you have the pink wine. Correct. And then you said there was a fourth one? Well, we actually air-dried Sanso this in the 21 vintage um, for a longer period of time, not just three days, but for actually 21 days. And... Uh, created much more significant concentration and combined that with Syrah, so co-fermented Sanso Syrah. And that's a spectacular wine, uh, which will be yeah. out ne next spring. Um, I, I love that grape. The, does the 21 days make it raisiny, raisiny like Amarone, or you don't get to that point in 21 days? Uh, well, we 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 aged, we age the grapes in indoors in the cellar not outside for 21 days um okay i've done i've done okay. that as well um so it gets about half the way to raisins it's kind of 
vaguely Amarone-ish. Yeah, it kind of gets the alcohol levels of, of, of a typical Amarone, like 15 and a half. Um, just so I know the answer, how long do they leave Amarone grapes out usually? Several months, but that oh, usually, okay. usually at a cooler temperature. and Right, um, different circumstances, but definitely a longer period. Yes. All right, so that's the language of yes is really where you're spending most of your time right now? Well, it's divided actually between language of yes and Popolishum. Right? So now I want to talk to you about Popolishum. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier your obsession with varietals. Um, to me, it seems like Popolishum is, you know, an opportunity for you to live out, <laughs> you know, that whole varietal pent up whatever you have in you. Um, this is a property and it's fairly significant that you've owned for over a decade right well not quite a decade yet i think it's been about 10 years for okay um so tell me tell me tell me about it i mean why did you you had some compulsion to buy it you know what for what are you doing you know get me up to speed on what's going on there because it sounds like sure. a cool. it's beyond cool it's beyond cool so uh, let me just correct you, Sam. In other words, I'm, I don't know that I'm obsessed with varieties. I mean, I'm really interested in exotic, weird, weird-ass grape varieties, for sure. There's no question about that. But I'm also interested in varieties as a, or different varieties as messengers or carriers or vehicles for transmission of soil characteristics. So the Popolishum project is actually a very different in nature from anything that I've done before. Um, so I'm actually interested in growing grapes in such a way that allow them to make the soil characteristics prominent in the in expression of the wine, more so than varietal characteristics. So I'm actually doing three things at Populishum. One is more conventional grape growing. In other words, varieties that are pre-existing but weird ones right. strange ones right. i mean or, or some some not so strange i mean i'm growing grenache gris grenache blanc but i'm also growing tiburin um Rouquet, um sagrantino some, some oddball oddball varieties like that grenache noir of course so i'm growing some varietal wines then the other right. thing that i'm doing that that's turning out surprisingly well is doing self-crosses. So in other words, I'm allowing grapes to cross with themselves. And I'm doing this with Serene and with Tiburin. Now, generally speaking, this is not a great idea because when you do self-crosses, you end up with a lot of weird, fun funky-looking, funky, <laughs> really? funky-performing grape varieties. You have it's right. like re recessive genes. It's like having a child with a, with a close sibling. Um, generally, right. not a great, generally not, not a, a great, not idea. a great idea, not a great idea. Right. However, you are, you're getting a lot of interesting, very variability. So many of the grapes are not so interesting, but a few of them are, but what's most interesting is just the incredible diversity. So for example, with the serene, as you know, um, serene has a, a red parent and a white parent, um, Dureza is the, is the father and Mondus Blanche is the mother. So one of the things that I'm finding with the 
the serene self-crosses is that 25% of the offspring produce white grapes. And these wow. white grapes are out of sight. I mean, they're amazing. Uh, some of them are more interesting than others, and some of them are very peppery like Syrah. Some of them are more floral, but they're all, <laughs> they're all different. And so I'm kind of thinking that a, a blend of these, of a set of white grapes, of serene blanche, if you will, could be exceptionally interesting. So we're going to have a, make a little tiny lab blend this year, a small, small scale uh, fermentation. That's, that's crazy. You, you almost sometimes don't know what you're going to come up with. No, right? exactly. You have and you're no dealt idea. like some interesting opportunities. You love that. I love that. I live for that. I live, yeah. totally live for that. Now, you mentioned more than a handful of varietals. I mean, is there even that many more, you know, that you're uh, playing around with? I mean, um, are you well, leaning towards Italian, French, anything, well, everything? Well, um, we've got a bunch of different things. I'm mostly, well, it's French and Italian, but I've got some Swiss grapes that are quite interesting. There's a yeah. Swiss grape called Cornelin that I like quite a bit. Mm. It seems to be be quite interesting but the the uh, i failed to mention the other thing that we're doing is actual proper crosses so right. we're from, from two different lineages and the two grapes we're working with are uh chile giolo and picolite and actually crossing them with each other and we did that this year for the first time and we'll see what, what kind of result we get again a white grape and a red grape that's, and that's great it, so i've absolutely no idea what to expect not not a clue so you know i listen to this and it's very exciting and it's very you know experimental um and this could go on for years and years i mean does something happen where you know when you cross the grapes or whatever something cool so great impressive comes along you know that you'll start trying to grow more of that and make wines from it i mean is I mean, that's part of it, because you also talked about, you know, varietals that will express the soil, too. I mean, well, where, I mean where, where, where do you want to go with this? Well, I want to go in whatever area seems to be the most promising and, luc- and interesting. I was, I, Freudian slip, I said lucrative. lucrative yeah, is probably I got not, the not, first part of that. Lucrative is probably not going to enter into this, unfortunately. No, it doesn't sound – this isn't a get-rich scheme as far as no, I'm seeing. <laughs> no, not so, not yeah. so much. There would yeah. be more efficient ways of doing it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea is just to keep experimenting and, you know, what you come up with. It's it's, it's very cool. Now, do you so – my understanding is, you know, the, the property is three 400 acres somewhere around there. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Are you using any of that acreage for any of the other wines? Uh, yes. So, in other words, we're growing Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris, and the, the, the first wine will be out this September. Uh, I've grown, strangely enough, Pinot Noir. I couldn't get it out of my system. Oh, there you go. You finally came back to it. Is that under the Pope Luchum label? Yeah. Okay. We, that, that'll be out in September, and, and I've done something totally self-indulgent and um, crazy. I planted Pinot uh, half acre, I'm sorry, half meter by meter spacing, uh, 10,000 vines per hectare. I'm sorry, of P- tw- tw- what do we say? 20,000 vines per hectare. Of Pinot Noir? Of Pinot Noir, correct. What kind of you know clone or w- what did you use for that? It's a 
totally random mix of 12 different clones. Oh, really? Oh, so that's interesting. Can you look at the control? I mean, are the 12 separated where you can evaluate? No, totally randomized. Totally it is. Random. Okay. All right. That'll be interesting. So um, in the fall of this year, Pope Lashum wines will be released? That is correct. Yes. All right. I'm I'm anxious to hear about that, and I will stay in touch with you on that, and we'll let people know about that. All right. So that's Pope Lashum. That sounds like a cool thing. Um, we got to wrap up pretty soon, but there's a couple of things I got to get to. Um, sure. Which is our wine list. Nobody leaves the show without doing the wine list. And then I want to taste the Syrah with you and just do a quick evaluation. Um, but Talk to me about, and don't spend too much time, you, you're a proponent and, you know, you push for ingredient labeling. Um, tell me about that. You, you know, when did you start doing it? Are you still doing it? You know, what does that mean? Do you reveal everything? Uh, yes and yes. Um, so I, I got to ingredient labeling after I sold Big House and um, just decided it was just kind of my... Um, come to Bacchus moment, if you will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And um, I just decided I needed to, wanted to be transparent. And I think I would be, I would be a better winemaker if I had to reveal everything that went into the, into the package, into the, into the bottle, I would have to be a lot more scrupulous about everything that we did in, in the cellar. Right. So it's, it. I think I'm a strong believer in, in, in wine labeling and ingredient, in ingredient labeling. Um, the world of wine is not exactly followed in my footsteps so much. A couple have uh, Ridge no. notably, but um, there's generally a lot of resistance, um, but it's a, it's a good practice and it makes, it makes you a better winemaker. And it yeah, also is, it, it's, it makes you a better wine customer as well of course yeah yeah it gives you a chance to choose and if that's important to you the uh, information's available it's a tough uh issue because there's a lot of stuff you can put in wine and to my understanding and i don't understand it that well there's a lot of stuff you could you know put in that is acceptable or legal i don't know what the right term is but there's a lot of crap you know that that you can put in. Um, I think that's why you have to really understand the winemakers and the wines that you're drinking. Like you said, you could pick up a bottle and look at the label. All right. So language of yes, very exciting. Pope Lotion, very exciting. Uh, Bonnie Dune's still out there. So you got a lot of stuff going on. All right, Randall, we do a thing on the show called The Wine List. Every show we've done this, it's five questions we ask our um, guests. We've asked over 200-plus guests the same five questions. Mm-hmm. I post the answers on social media because people love to hear what Randall is drinking and suggesting. So it's five simple, silly questions. The first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you experimenting? What are you curious about? Do the change of the seasons push you towards other wines? Um, Besides, you know, researching for your own wines, what stuff are you drinking now? Well, I'm drinking a lot of Rosese. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, there's a producer that Kermit brings in, uh, Anfosa, Tenuta Anfosa, that makes a fabulous red and white. Um, I forget what they what he calls the white. 
it's but it's actually Rosese Bianco. Well, it it doesn't say it on the label, but it oh, is it, it actually is Rosese Bianco. Okay. Now, Rosese Bianco of course has no relationship whatsoever to Rosese Nero. That would of course be way too straightforward for Right. <laughs> right. All right, so Rosese, anything else? Um the the other Italian white that I love is I love Friulani wines and uh, Yes. Ronchi di Ciala, uh, I drink a lot. I love Ronchi di Ciala, Ciala Bianco, which yes. is a, a blend of uh, Picolit, Verduzzo, and uh, Ribola. I think Ciala. that's yeah, that's fantastic wine. Yeah, that is that is really good stuff. Um, if we can get more people to try it, they'll be very impressed with it. All right, so those those are good ones. Next question is kind of the goofiest one in the batch. But the question is, your favorite wine and food pairing? Not what you think a good wine and food pairing is, or logic. What do you What do you like pair every now and then? Obviously, something you don't eat every night, week, whatever. But what's that ooh ah wine and food pairing? Um, white Rhones, like an Hermitage Blanc with right. uh, uni uni risotto. Oh, that's a good one. First of all, nobody has ever uh, said that one. <laughs> Um, I, I would doubt that, that. I would doubt that, that. Yes, that that's super interesting. I think the uh, the wine has enough body to handle the uh, uni and the richness of the risotto. That's a good call. Um, and like I said, we post that. All right, third question. Don't know how much you go out, get around, or whatever. But you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar, a couple of places, and I preface this by saying whatever you mention is not you know your ultimate favorite or list it's just some places where the wine list is cool the vibe is great the people are knowledgeable whether it's you know in the neighborhood or in your travels does anything come to mind well there was a great wine restaurant called swaf in santa cruz which unfortunately closed uh about a month soif soif yes not there not there anymore alas Ah, sad okay Anything to back it up? I mean, any other place? Oh, let me think. My gosh, there's uh, not a lot of great wine opportunities in Santa Cruz. No, it's a little sad, yeah. Now, when you were in New York not that long ago, I mean, New York is, you know, natural wine bars, regular wine bars, fancy restaurants. Anything pop out while you were here? Well, of course, Terroir Wine Bar, Paul Greco's place. Yes, we mentioned him earlier. Yes. Say No More, that's a good one, so... Uh, as they say in Catholic school, we'll sit shiver for swaf and we'll say, <laughs> we'll say terroir. All right, that's the third question. Fourth question. Question is your favorite all-time wine. Now, I've been doing the podcast for over five years. When I initially presented that question, I was curious about what's the most expensive rare wine Randall Graham ever drank. I don't give a crap about it. The question has morphed into what's that wine, and it may go back to that merchant in Santa Monica, what's that wine that influenced you, changed the way you thought about wine, you know, life-changing, gateway, any of those things. Is there a wine or two that fits into that category? Unfortunately for me, there are several. Um, All right, so give me, I'll tell you when to stop. Okay, the 49 Moussigny Comte de Vogue out of Magnum. <laughs> okay, that's not a hard one. <laughs> that that was life-changing. 
Um, the 71 Schwarzhofberger Auslese gold capsule also was life-changing. Yeah, that's not the first time somebody's mentioned that wine on the show, so it must be pretty good. Go ahead. Um, 61 Petrus, I'd say, was definitely yeah. um, kind of in up, up there. 61 Palmer, I'd say, also. I think that I think I've done enough damage. Um, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Because you kind of your interest, you cut your teeth like with Bordeaux's and Burgundy's at the wine shop type thing, right? Cor- correct. Correct. So those, you know, those those influence you early on. All right, those are good ones. All right, last question, and I think you should be able to handle this pretty well. We ask everyone, recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. Um, Recommend a red and a white. You could recommend category, like Muscadet is great category for the value. Um, You can include any of your wines. Obviously, you can go outside. But my kids are like in their mid-late 20s. And they can't show up at dinners and give gifts with crappy supermarket wine, but they also can't afford 40, 50 bucks. So how do you wow at 20, 22, 19? Give me some ideas. Well, it's a, probably a little more expensive than 20, 20 bucks, but the closey okay. bun, the closey bun rosé, I think is classic. Um, okay. In the how do you spell C bun? Is it C I B O N? C I B O N C I B O N N E. E, right. Okay. So that's a good one. So <laughs> I asked for a red and a white. You gave me yeah, that. I, I so, gave you a pink. I just <laughs> yeah. gave you a pink. So, so there. So what? Give me one more. Can you think of something? A great value wine? Well, in, in category, I think one of the categories that's grossly undervalued is, strangely enough, Riesling. German Riesling. I agree. I agree. So you. You can get a fabulous cabinet probably still for 25 bucks. Um, I'd, I'd get a cat. I agree with you. you. You still can get some good value, you know, entry-level wines. Alzinger, all these guys making great wines. Yeah. All right. Admirable, more than an admirable job. Very good thank, job. Thank you. All right. Thank so you. our last segment of the show is our weekly wine sip. You know, every week we taste a different wine on air. Certainly when I have a winemaker on, why wouldn't I sit with him and taste his wines? Good opportunity for you to showcase and talk about him. You know, great way for me to schnur a couple of bottles <laughs> from everybody. Uh, but no, not really. I mean, the connection of sharing the wines is what's really important to me. So we tasted the uh, the Grenache. Um, we're going to taste the 2020 language of yes, Syrah from Rancho Real Vineyard in the Santa Maria Valley. And that's, this is the end Passerillage. Did I say it right? Yes. Okay. All right. So tell me a little more about this wine. Tell me about the vintage, you know, Syrah, the, as much as you want to tell me, tell me. And then well, taste. So this is, again, we use the same technique. We air dried the grapes for three days in the vineyard. We did the lasagna technique. And I think this particular vintage was enormously successful. We kept the alcohol down below 14, which is a miracle. But what's most most interesting about the wine is it's herbal, Provencal, Garrigue-ish expression. So I'm not sure how much actual Garrigue is in, is in Rancho Real, but there's this wonderful um, spicy, it's peppery, it's got the rotundone element from the Syrah, but it also has, you know, when you taste a Provencal wine, 
you're tasting the underbrush, the garig, and yeah. somehow we accidentally created a very similar taste phenomenon in this particular wine. I don't, I don't, I don't even know exactly how we did it, but. All right, so let's talk about it. So I have it in front of me. I want to go through the basics. So the color, it's a fairly deep red. You know, I've seen darker Syrahs, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dark. Um, The edges, you know, are a little reddish. So it's a beautiful color. Um, Not filtered, but, you know, has some nice clarity. Um, I suck at this, but I'm going to defer to you. And you may have said a few of the descriptors. What do we get on the nose? Pepper, white pepper, juniper. Yeah, it is a white pepper because it's more refined. It's not overpowering. What else did you say? Juniper. Yep. What about... Um, and maybe a little... And then rosemary. Well, definitely herbaceous, like in that rosemary, sage, you know, that thing. Yeah. Am I getting any... I think I am, but I could be crazy. Is there any flower or lavender or any of that in there? Or no? Could be lavender. You know, I'm, uh, it's it's still only eleven o'clock in the morning out in California. So, <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm, I'm working from memory, but I think lavender is a good call. Yeah, and it has um, not heavy, but some of those Syrah characteristics. There's a little, I think olive. You know, I'm picking up there. Oh black, ol- oh, black olive for sure. That's- yeah, not tapenade, but more the olive because tapenade's a little richer. Um, so I get that. All right. Um, the mouthfeel to me is a medium at least. Um, it's not thin. It's not, you know, glycerin-y or unctuous. It's got a beautiful mouthfeel. It's mouth-filling. Um, now, we talked about the nose. Does the palate replicate a lot of the nose stuff? Like I get the peppery in the palate, I get darker fruits. Tell me what you remember in the palate. Um, again, kind of the olive flavor, um, maybe some black raspberry. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Tannins are yep. are re- reasonably soft. You know, not 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 particularly astringent wine. Um, yeah, I don't want to say really soft, semi soft. The tannins are really nice. You know, they they're they're in a good place. You know, they're not strong. They're not absent. I mean, they're really, they're doing their thing, which is really nice. Um, So to that point, what foods, what's for this wine, what, what's a good pair? with these? Well, the, the, the great, the great pairing of course is the classic pairing of lamb. I think lamb and Syrah can't, can't be beat. I agree. The gaminess and the lamb, the strength of the wine. Lamb with like lamb with tapenade would be pretty pretty great. Yeah, like this or or lamb with that. lamb with with wild wild mushrooms or even um, even even fruit even wild yeah. even cherries cherries would be nice as well. Yeah, that would be good. Um, so, are you happy with the way this wine came out? When I taste it now and you tasted it like I was, is this where you wanted to be? Do you look at this and go, well, I'm almost there. I need to do this. Or, you know, what's, this is your first vintage, you know, so what's your assessment? Abe, I'm thrilled. I'm just thrilled with that, thrilled with how it came out. So you hit the ground running. Correct. I'm very happy. 
I think it's great. I think because the alcohol is not too high and it's not, you know, a very full bodied, you know, Syrah, but it's got all the taste profiles. Um, I think it's terrific. I'm more than surprised in a good way. I mean, I don't have to be surprised in anything you do, but who the hell knows, you know, what this <laughs> is going to turn out to be. So it's really good. So that's the 2020, the language of yes. Now the language of yes is the name of the winery. That's Randall's new project. Um, this is the Syrah. That's the varietal. Um, it's from the Rancho Real Vineyard from the Santa Maria Valley. And it's the end Passolarage, if I got that right again. Um, do you know what are we looking at ballpark retail? Forty-five. Okay, so it's a great value for that. Um, I think this makes it more of an occasion wine. I think if you're going to take the time to go and you know roast a lamb or something and have a bunch of people around the table, these are the type of wines you want to invest in. You don't need to spend more, and for something like that, you know. Why spend less? So congrats on the wine. I love them both. Um, and we'll uh, hope to drink and hear about more of them. All right, Randall, we got to wrap up. Like I told you, we were going to run over our allotment. Um, my engineer, Kevin, has given me the googie eyes. Even <laughs> though there's no video. All right, so let me do a quick wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, I'm not begging you to subscribe, but you really should subscribe because when people like Randall Graham grace, you know, our mics and you subscribe, the thing pops right up and it's there. You don't have to go, oh, how come I didn't know about the Randall Graham podcast or um, I missed it. Just hit that subscribe button, all right? You can follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby, B E N R U B I. I know that's confusing, but you can connect both of those by using the hashtag The Grape Nation, and that'll get you there. As I mentioned, we'll post Randall's wine list selections, some cool recommendations there. And I will post the weekly wine sip selection, the Grenache and the uh, Syrah um, on our social media. Now, Randall, if people are intrigued by now, um, they can go to bed in the middle of the day, <laughs> fine by me. Where can we find more info about the wines and if people want to follow you on social media? Give me some lowdown on all that stuff. So there's a website for Language of Yes, languageofyes.com, strangely enough. Okay, good um, idea. Popolishum has a website. I'm not sure how live it is, but if it's not live now, it should be live sooner than later. So, so let's do two things. Spell Popolishum to everybody. P-O-P-E-L-O-U-C-H-U-M. Right, and I would... I was just on it. There is a site. There's no real movement on it, but I think that's what you're talking about that's coming. There's a little information on it, um, but you should check it out and then uh, check back. And if people want to follow you on social media, yeah, it's, it's actually Randall Graham uh, on Twitter. G-R-H-M. G-R-A-H-M. G-R-A-H-M. No A between the uh, Correct. H and the M. 
I don't know if that's the Scottish version, the English version, the Jewish version, but there's no A in there. So whatever the hell that is. Correct. All right. So I want to thank our guest, Randall Graham. Randall, it's great to catch up with you because you are truly doing some exciting things and they're fun to talk about on top of what you've been doing most of your life. Um, I want to thank our engineer, as always, Kevin, for being patient, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.